All right, I'm glad y'all are here. Um, let me ask you, there's several things in Scripture um, that the Bible actually assumes that the reader believes. There are some assumptions in every single passage of Scripture that the moment you start reading it, you know the Bible assumes that the reader believes a, a certain few things. And this is one of the ones that I kind of want to set the foundation for tonight as we talk about the Word of God. It is fascinating to me that in 66 books of the Bible, in the 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New Testament books, that not one place in the law, that not one place in the prophets, that not one place in poetry, that not one place in the Gospels, that not one place in the epistles, that not one place in the apocalyptic literature, nowhere in the Bible do you ever see an argument for the proof of the existence of God. Nowhere in the Bible do you find a passage where it debates or lays out an argument for why you should believe there is a God. The Bible obviously says only the fool in his heart believes that there is no God, but there is a fundamental assumption in the Bible that you believe that there is a God. But there's another fundamental assumption that is assumed in every Bible passage that when you begin reading in Genesis 1-1, we're going to begin a, um, a, a new program together uh, starting ja in January this year. Um, we always try to promote a Bible reading program. The one that we're going to do this coming year is my favorite Bible reading program. It is through the Bible in one year. Starting in Genesis, you read 365 days a year. You will read the Bible in one year. It is about three chapters a day. That, when you break it down like that, that's really not that much. So we're going to actually give you the opportunity to sign up, to be a part of that, so that we can not only put reminders that are going to be on social media, but we're going to have text reminders that will give you the actual passage every morning of what you need to read to stay up on that. But we're also starting, um, I got convicted a couple of years ago um, in my own, just in my own life about trying to do better about knowing God's Word. Not just studying God's Word, but knowing God's Word. And, and I can remember watching some of our children in Bible drill. And if you've never watched children do Bible drill, you should absolutely see how incredible it is. Their minds are like sponges. They, they memorize Scripture. So... I ordered a book a couple of weeks ago. It's nothing complicated, but the title of the book is A Hundred Bible Verses That Everybody Should Know. One Hundred Bible Verses That Everybody Should Know. So over the next, starting in January, for the next hundred weeks, it'll take us about two years, we're going to challenge you not only daily with having a Bible reading plan so that you can hide God's Word in your heart that you might not sin against God, but we're also going to challenge the whole church, we're going to do it together, to memorize one verse of Scripture a week. Now, the great thing about that is some of them you're already going to know. Some of them you're going to know, but maybe you hadn't memorized the reference to it. And so we're going to make it that a highlight. We're going to push it. We're going to have it. We're going to do it with our students. We're going to do it with all of us. So we're going to, uh, I think it's going to be really good. You probably already know the first one, so you're already ahead. When you pick 100 Bible verses that everybody should know, the very first one is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so every week, we're going to do that. And so part of your Bible reading, we believe that we want to be people who not only ingest the Word of God by study and by preaching and by reading, 
but we want to hide its word in our heart. We want it to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so the way we can do that is to hold each other, hold each other accountable and to, to memorize some of these, what I think are very basic Bible verses. So we're going to be doing that. And so tonight, just to, to kind of piggyback on that, we're going to talk about what it means that, that the word of God, when we say that thy word is true. We said that the Bible assumes the existence of God in every passage, but there are two other things that are assumed in every Bible passage, in every Bible passage. Not only his existence, but number one, this is the first question, number one is that he is the king of the universe, he is the king of the universe, and that he speaks. It's something that we take for granted, but I, I want us to talk about that for just a moment. God actually speaks. You could have a God that did not reveal himself, but God chooses to reveal himself. So the whole Bible is predicated not only that there is a sovereign king of the universe, but that that sovereign king of the universe wants to know and be known. And the way he does that is through speaking. And so it even tells us, helps us to understand why God speaks. Certainly we know that he speaks um, when you open up to Genesis 1.1. There's creative power in his word. He speaks things into existence. The power of the words of God. He enacts regulations. He enacts laws. And we know that he uses it to establish a connection with us. Why do we have a relationship with God? Why do you have a relationship with God? Immediately, most people in church will say because of Jesus. And that's not wrong. But fundamentally, before you ever get to knowing who Jesus is, the reason you have a relationship with God is because God has revealed himself to you. Had God not revealed himself to you, had God not spoken, you would have no way to know God. If God chose to stay in the shadows and not reveal himself and not speak, so it's one of the reasons why in John 1, when we hear about Jesus being revealed, it says, in the beginning was what? Was the Logos is the Greek word, or in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, meaning that he is the very revelation of God. He is what is, when we know Jesus, we know God, because we have, he has spoken not only into existence, but spoken by the person and work of Christ. So when we know that God speaks to us, number three, what does it mean then, Packer asks, that God sends his wor Word to us in character, in both information and invitation. In information and invitation. So he comes to us not only to call us to himself, but also to instruct us. So he wants us to know him, but he also wants us to come into relationship with him. So if, if you've got your Bibles, and you, we're, we're going to look at a couple of passages tonight, but if you just open them to Genesis 1, the, the first three chapters of Genesis reveal the modes in which God is going to speak throughout the whole rest of the Bible. How does God speak in the first three chapters of, of the Bible is how God is going to speak throughout the rest of the Bible. So I, I'll let you, you've got your Bibles open to Genesis 1, you're looking at that. Um, you, you, when you read Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, can anybody remember um, what does God tell Adam and Eve? What does, what does he reveal to them? What command does he give them? Be fruitful and multiply, and that they now have dominion over the earth. So he gives them a command to 
not only be fruitful and multiply, but to now they are to have dominion over the earth. So we see in God's word, we saw the creative power of his word, we see the command of his word, and then he tells them, and then he gives a testimony about who he is and what he has done. He tells them, behold, and he shows all the plants that he has made for them to eat. He, he shows them that they can eat of these trees and tells them to eat of these trees. So he gives a testimony about what he has done, but then he also gives a prohibition. He has told them, this is what you should do. You should have dominion. You should eat of the fruit of these trees and enjoy. And then he tells them, though, he also gives them a prohibition. So one thing is positive, do this, but another is a prohibition, don't do what? You know, real simple. You can eat anything you want to, you don't eat that. There's one tree that you cannot eat of. Eat of. So he gives prohibition. And then in chapter 3, especially in verses 15, starting in verse 15, he pronounces the curse that's going to take place. He tells them, and we're actually talking about Sunday, we're talking about our work. We're talking about how we've been talking about, well, not this, excuse me, not this Sunday, next Sunday, this coming Sunday, we're talking about children and parents. We're continuing the family series. And then the following week, we're going to talk about our work lives and how our faith should affect our work life. So it, we're talking about how the Christian interacts inside every aspect of family and business and all that goes with that. But what we learn in, in Genesis 3 is when the curse falls on the world, most people think that the reason we have to work is because of the curse. And that is not the case. They had to work before the fall. Work is not the product of the fall. All of the thorns and the thistles and the labor of the brow and the sweat and the toil, that's a result of the fall. All the problems and issues with that, the pain and child rearing, the battle of the sexes that we talked about last week, all of that comes because God promises you broke this prohibition and now there is going to be consequences and even promises that there's now going to be enmity between the serpent and between man and the promised redeemer. So we have command, testimony, prohibition, and promise. Now throughout the rest of the Bible, that's how God's going to speak. He almost lays a palette out for how he's going to communicate, not only in the first three chapters of Genesis, but throughout all of the Bible. So then, if you flip over now to talk about the power of the Word of God, to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10. Jeremiah 1, 10. I, I want to give you a, a moment to find that, but while you're taking a moment to find that, we talk a lot, um, we critique the prosperity gospel a lot, we critique, critique the word of faith movement, which we should. But there is a very dangerous, and, and you hear it um, probably, I mean, there's certainly the, the greatest purveyors um, of part of this devilish theology if you're familiar with like jesse duplantis and and you've seen him on tv if you've seen joel osteen on tv if you've seen joyce meyer on television um creflo dollar and all of these shysters have that are in the word of faith movement you will hear them talk about and joel osteen talks about it a lot he'll say there's a miracle in your mouth and you can speak 
power over this. And you have the word way that you can speak things into existence. Let me explain something to you. You cannot speak anything into existence. Do you know why they believe that? It's one of the one of the greatest issues that's not talked about is they believe in what is called the little God's doctrine. That not only do you serve God, but you can become God. You can become your own God. And so because of this doctrine, they believe then that you have the power in your speech. So that's one of the reasons when we hear about all this power of positivity, that if I just speak, if I sow a seed, that now I'm going to create my own reality by speaking this into existence. If you want a husband, you just need to speak that into existence and it can happen. If you want all your bills paid, you need to speak that into existence. If you're sick and you need to be well, you need to speak that into existence. And I'm telling you, there are going to be a lot of people who are broke, single, and sick because you don't have the power to be able to do that inside your words because your words have absolutely no power because you are not divine and you are not a little God. So because of that, once we understand that, we need to ask ourselves the question, why then in Jeremiah 1.10 does God tell Jeremiah that by his words he would establish and destroy kingdom? Because these are the type verses that get polluted and perverted by word of faith shysters and hucksters that say, you see how God allowed Jeremiah, he had the power to destroy kingdoms were in his words. It is very dangerous. I watched recently with great interest a man who prophesied that Donald Trump would be elected for a second term when Biden got elected. He prophesied that. said the Lord had revealed that to him, so he prophesied it. Well, he was wrong. So he gets on television, and he, I guess to his credit, offers an apology for giving a wrong prophecy. What do you call someone who prophesies falsely? This isn't a hard one. Just reverse the words. A false prophet. And anytime someone gives false prophecy, what that means is, is that obviously that was not of God. Because God wouldn't have gotten the presidential election wrong. Not the God that I, not the God of Scripture. Now, this isn't about whether or not you like Trump or th- that, by, that had, this isn't a political conversation. This is about the fact that we have a God who absolutely, when he speaks, he speaks truth. There is no falsehood in him. So the reason that Jeremiah would have the power in his words is because Jeremiah was prophesying what? The very words of God. Now, when someone claims to be a prophet, I will tell you, be very, very careful. In fact, I'm pretty comfortable telling you that you might ought to leave. Because the role of prophecy is to tell the truth on God's behalf. Now, what is interesting about the 66 books of the Bible, how long do y'all think it'll be before we get a 67th book? I mean, when when is that going to happen? When are we going to get a 60? When is the next book going to be inspired and going to be added to this? 
When are we all going to have to get new copy? When's your Bible going to be expired? It's not, is it? Why? Because when we talk about the Bible, have you ever heard of the word canon? The word canon, that is, when we're talking about the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible are what's called the canon. And what we believe is that the canon is closed. It's not an open canon, it's a closed canon. So, if I claim to be a prophet, and I start giving you new revelation, which, by the way, all the people that I just named, and I could give you a hundred more, one of the reasons that we know they are false prophets is because they claim to have new revelation that is extra-biblical. I don't know what is hard to understand about Revelation 22. If anyone seeks to add to the best book of the Bible, let them be accursed. So the role of prophet, you say, well, you don't believe that there is a role of prophecy. The prophet is fundamentally, even in Scripture, the role of prophet was not about being a fortune teller. When we hear the word prophet, we think of, oh, well, that's somebody that's going to tell my future, like you're going to go see somebody with tarot cards or palm reader. When the, the fundamental place of the prophet in Scripture was to do what? Tell the truth. To speak truth. So does the role of the pastor or the preacher, is there a prophetic element involved? Like in what we're doing now or on Sundays, is there a prophetic element? Absolutely there's a prophetic element. In that, we always tell the truth of Scripture, but there's nothing, if I came to you and said Sunday, y'all all come close because I have a fresh word and nobody's ever heard this before. Leave. Because if somebody is original, they're also a heretic. Because God has covered it. So the role of prophecy now is not about adding to the Bible, it's about speaking the truth of the Bible. So the reason Jeremiah would establish and destroy kingdoms by the words of his mouth were because the words were directly from the Lord. So that's Isaiah. Let, let, let's put one, or excuse me, Jeremiah. Look at, you can just flip right over to, to Isaiah chapter 55. It, it's right there close. If you're in Jeremiah, you're not going to have to go far. If you go from Jeremiah, you just go back a little ways, you're going to find yourself in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. And we've referenced this verse many, 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 many times over the years because it helps us to understand what, how, what God testifies about His Word. And when you look at verse 10 and 11, what does it says? say? As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You know, one of the discouraging things, if you've ever taught, if you've ever preached, if you've ever worked with children and taught Sunday school or taught youth Sunday school or worked with adults or taught adults on Wednesday nights, do you know sometimes, sometimes it's our flesh, sometimes it's just, Sometimes it's a runaway mind. Sometimes it's the world we live in. Sometimes it's the stresses. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's the devil. And sometimes you will leave here, and I can't, I'd love to tell you I'm never plagued by this. I would love to tell you I don't struggle with this. I don't struggle with it as much as I used to, but I still struggle with it. 
There are times when I leave here and I go, that was a complete waste of time. I don't think anybody got anything out of that. I don't know that anybody is was listening. I wonder if anybody is going to sin less. I wonder if anybody's going to get saved because of that. And then over the course of ministry, I realized that if I was going to beat myself up every time I preached, I was going to have this was going to be a rough, this is going to be a rough go. And then the Lord really convicted me. I mean, really convicted me to help me to understand that all I can do is my best. And I try to do that every time that I pre- I try to do my best. That doesn't mean they're all good. Some of them are stinkers. But I do the best. I, I mean, I, it, y'all are getting the best from me. I'm doing the best I can. And that's all I can do. I've got to prepare. I've got to pray. And then I've got to do the best I can to communicate to you all. But it is very arrogant, and I'm, I'm confessing this, to walk over to my office and pout about, I sure... I, I guess nobody listened. I guess nobody's going to get saved. I guess nobody's going to turn their life around. And I've never heard God speak audibly, so I don't want you to, this isn't weird, but as clear as if it had been audible, I can, the Lord told me one day, He just as clear as a bell, I heard him say, you are so arrogant. And I thought, no, I, this, is, this isn't arrogance. And as clear, I thought, yeah, it is. Because if you weren't so arrogant, you wouldn't think that it was up to you whether or not people connected with the Lord or whether they connected with me or whether they repented or whether they got saved. Because at the end of the day, that has nothing to do with your speaking ability. That has nothing to do with your presentation. That has nothing to do with your little catchy illustrations. That has everything to do with the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And so I've come to this passage a hundred times, and I have learned that the Word of God does not return to It is amazing sometimes. What God does, and sometimes it's weeks and years later. Um, I, I'm just, it, it blows my mind because I'm here, and that may not be weird to some of you that, that I'm sitting here teaching you on a Wednesday night at church, but there would be so many people in my life that as I was growing up, if you would have told them that this is what I'd be doing, and I got to think that there were people that were teaching me when I was five years old that were going, you talk about a waste of time. You've been around this kid? I mean, he lit fire extinguishers off in the third floor at church, and he, was, he and his buddies were seeing if they could eat a whole bottle of Elmer's glue. And I don't think he came for any other reason than to eat donut hole. And most of the time, I don't think he'd have come here if his mother hadn't made him and we had to go get him off the railroad tracks in Hattiesburg because he was supposed to be in RAs and he was putting pennies on the track, letting him get flattened by the train. Nobody could find where he was. There's a kid that got sent home from youth camp. It, I mean, all this is, this is true. And I've got to think that there are people in my life that were like, what a waste of time on that idiot. They might have been right about the idiot part, but I'll, I kind of want to go back. Some of them are dead now and just be like, you aren't wasting your time. And some of you need to know you're not wasting your time. And the Word of God doesn't return void. And it works in people. And there are things, the way it, it goes, it sets inside our bones is what Hebrews 4 and 12 said. So then, what we know is, when we read Scripture, when we memorize Scripture, what is the proper response to the Word of God? Now, there are people, and we've all been guilty of this. I've been guilty of this. I'm still guilty of this at times that we're reading our Bible, but we're trying to get through reading our Bible. Or we are 
reading our Bible or memorizing a verse of Scripture or whatever it may be, listening to a sermon, but it is how you approach the Word of God. Do I really want to receive it? Do I really want to trust it? Do I really want to obey it? And so when we approach, like when we get to this time of reading through the Bible, I would just challenge you that before we read, you don't have to have a long time of prayer, but settle your heart enough to say, Lord, teach me, help me to see what it is you want me to, to, to learn about this. Lord, help me be willing to change where I need to change. Help me be willing to obey where I need to obey. What is the proper response? That, that's it. And then, then you see number eight here, and, and what is truth? What is truth in the Bible? Same question Pilate asked. What is truth? I think we have got to be a people. Fascinating. Fascinating. I'll just give you all this today. Um, one of my kids went on a field trip this week for a school club. You remember what we talked about Sunday? And I happen to mention to you guys that I think it's a shame that I've got to spend time on this. But if we're going to talk about husbands and wives, I told you that, that the first thing you need to know is that you're either born male or you're born female, and that's assigned to you by birth, and you don't change that. We walk, we, we spent some time on that. Just today, one of my kids goes to a field trip. They go to an art museum. They have a neutral, this is in Mississippi, neutral gender bathrooms. The tour guide introduces himself with neutral pronouns the God that's going to guide all of this. And the reason I bring that up to you is because when we say what is truth, one of the fundamental things we need to be teaching our kids and that we need to understand is that there is truth and that there are lies. There is right and there is wrong because the world we live in is a world of such moral ambiguity that we live in a country now that being taught at an elite level that we have people that would elevate Hamas over the nation of Israel with, that has a Judeo-obviously biblical ethic when we understand that, and you say, how could this be? It's when you get to a place where there's absolutely more, no moral authority. There is no more right. There is no more wrong. There is no more boy. There is no more girl. There is no more heterosexual marriage. There, all of that begins to fade into ambiguity. So before you approach the Word of God, you have to believe that there is such thing as singular truth. And yet the world philosophy that we live in, it wouldn't stand up to the basic test of any other discipline. So when it comes to morality, we say, well, well morals are ambiguous. Until when? Do you, do you understand what I'm... At what point do they quit being ambiguous? Well, sexuality, they're ambiguous. Well, let's say I was to grant you that. I'm not granting you that, but let's just say I was to grant you that. At what point are you willing to stop saying that morality is ambiguous? Everybody has a limit. Eventually, you're going to get to what people call heinous crimes. Well, do you believe that rape is wrong? Oh, yeah, well, that's wrong. So you do believe that. Do you believe that murder is wrong? Oh, I believe that's wrong. You're eventually going to reach a point where you do find some places that even the most staunch believer in moral ambiguity and non-truth is going to have to believe for the sake of any form of social order that there is some right and wrong, so there's some truth and some untruth. Part of the reason that when we approach math, when we approach language, when we approach anything, we have to believe that some things are fundamentally true or you can't teach anybody anything. 
And so when we approach the Word of God, fundamentally we believe that it is true. Since God's commands are true, then we know there are results of disobedience and there are benefits to obedience. Obviously, the results of disobedience are destruction, um, guilt, soul destruction, and applying God's Word protects us. Um, obviously, it gives us, strengthens our prayer life, it quiets our hearts, it allows us now to live in a world in which there are absolutes. And there have to be absolutes because if everything is relative, everything in your life loses meaning. Number 10. So if we're going to define a Christian, if I said define a Christian, now someone would obviously say somebody believes in Jesus. Well, you'd say it would have to be more than that. You'd have to believe in someone that, that believed that Jesus died on the cross. Somebody might say it would be more than that. You'd have to believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And somebody would say, well, you need to believe more than that. You'd have to also repent of your sin, and, and you'd have to surrender your life to him. But fundamentally, this is Packer offers the simplest definition of a Christian that I've ever read. A Christian is people who acknowledge and live under the Word of God. That's about as simple as it gets. Does that describe someone who acknowledges and lives under the Word of God? That doesn't mean that anything else I said before that is not true, but the only reason that you know any of those things is because you know it because God has revealed it through the power of the Word. So when we come to the Word of God, we believe thy word is true. We believe that we hide it word in our hearts so that we may not sin against God. We believe that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe that it is like a sword. It pierces even to the joints and the marrow. We believe that it is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. We believe that about the Word of God. So I want to encourage you, as you get ready on a Bible plan, you get ready to read the Word of God, you get ready to read through the Bible, don't stop because it gets hard. Don't stop because you get behind. Don't stop because you don't understand everything. Keep on keeping on. If you keep on keeping on, what you're going to find is there's a cumulative effect to that. And over time, that you are going to, going to grow and grow mightily um, in, in that as you continue to study the Word of God. We're going to continue to do that uh, this coming Sunday. I'm excited, um, excited to talk about um, the need for parent, children to obey um, their parents. I think that is a much-needed um, discussion that we're going to have this coming Sunday. And we're going to also talk about what it means for a parent not to exasperate their children. So I'm excited about this coming week and next week as well. Uh, invite someone to come and be a part of that. If you know uh, parents that have children, uh, especially if they have really bad kids, you want to know everybody ought to be here for that. Invite them to come and to, and to be a part of that. We're looking forward to that. Let's pray together and you will be dismissed. Lord, we bow before you tonight because we're thankful that your word is truth. We're thankful that we know you because you have revealed yourself to us. We're thankful that we have the Bible and we're thankful that because we have the Bible, we can know you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So tonight, as we bow before you, I pray that we would be a people that would submit to your word, that we would listen to you, and because we have listened to you, we have known you, and because we have known you, we have loved you, because we love you, we obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.